Morning again, everyone. I don't know if uh, you were really paying attention, hope you were paying attention to the words of the songs that Dave has uh, led us in this morning. Um, I haven't sung some of those old hymns in a while, but there were some things in there I needed to hear this morning, so thank you, Dave. I think that most people believe that they have a better memory than they really do. Uh, It's probably because we don't remember how much we've forgotten. It's kind of convenient that way. Um, And we don't even know that we've forgotten something until that really crucial moment when we need to remember. Or, even worse, in that moment when we realize that the moment we should have remembered has just passed us by, and it's too late. We've all had that sort of deer-in-a-headlights expression. They're just going, oh no, I forgot. And then it all comes crashing down on you. What? You've forgotten. And that moment is always a really unpleasant surprise. It's sort of the cruel nature of forgetting. You're always surprised by it when it finally hits you. And even if you have what we might consider a good memory, whatever that means... Things can still get pretty interesting when you're dealing with what I'm going to call practical memory. On the way to the church that I grew up in, there on Main Street in the little town that you have to pass through to get there, there's a, a section of Main Street that has become, at least in recent years I've heard, uh, become sort of a notorious speed trap. There's a place where I think the speed limit drops from like 45 to 25 really suddenly and unexpectedly. And most people around there now know that there's one particular officer that just really likes to sit at that spot where it suddenly drops from 45 to 25. And that's happened for long enough now that if you find yourself driving down that road, you suddenly find that people are really good at remembering what the speed limit is on that particular stretch of road. Everybody is hitting the speed limit right there. Now, they might not have paid that much attention to it further down the road before that, or further down the road after that. But in that one moment, in that place where they know it really matters, they really remember the speed limit. Or at least they remember the the risk to their wallets right there. And really, that's practical memory. That's remembering something in a way that actually affects your behavior. See, our typical idea of memory deals with just sort of our recall of of the things that we've seen or the things that we've heard. Information that we feel like we should file away for future use. But what I'm calling practical memory, well, that's sort of the, the subset of those things that we actually believe, the, the part that we accept as, as true and relevant to our lives. So, what we say we believe, uh, what we even think we believe, is really more a reflection of what we agree with in theory. What we really believe is revealed by what we live out in practice. So, you could say that practical memory is how I remember to live right now. In the book of Judges, we see the picture of a nation with a pretty serious practical memory problem. 
See, God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants and and brought this fledgling nation out of bondage in Egypt. He remembered the promises that he had made about the land that he was going to give them. And now while fulfilling those promises, he even gave them a law and a record filled with reminders of who his people were, what their God had done for them. But after receiving deliverance under Moses and receiving their promised land under Joshua, well, the Israelites, they grew pretty comfortable and they grew pretty forgetful. This quick lapse of memory is laid out pretty clearly in Judges chapter 2. In verse 7, it tells us that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Now, time has a way of making us forget. And so, in verse 10, it says, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done in Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And so, as a consequence, we see down in verse 15, whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. And they were in great distress. They weren't comfortable anymore. Then the Lord raised up, a, raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. And so things are looking pretty good now for like two or three verses. But then you get to verse 19. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. And this passage lays out here in the opening parts of Judges this sad cycle that we'll see repeated over and over and over again among God's people, especially in this time period. And the rest of of this book of Judges have idolatry leading to oppression, but that leads to a judge and, and deliverance. But that deliverance leads to comfort and forgetting and idolatry. And the cycle repeats itself again. Now, we can look at that cycle and pretty easily convince ourselves that the point of this passage is to teach some version of of retribution theology, reducing God's justice and blessing to a simple formula. Now, we could get into a whole exploration of the book of Job here, but I don't want to stray too far from the point. But that book, Job, it just seems to be placed there in the Old Testament to remove from our minds any ideas we might have about the righteous getting an easy life of blessing and the unrighteous getting a difficult life of punishment. Now, lots of people have thought that that's the way things worked and and that they could game the system and view God like some sort of cosmic vending machine for their own prosperity if they just do all the right things. But the truth revealed in Scripture is far more complex than that. And if things really were that simple, would God even bother to raise up a judge to begin with, to deliver Israel. I mean, they had broken the covenant. God really had no further obligation toward them. But in his mercy, he continually delivers his people. 
So I don't think it's just that simple. I think the greater point of this passage and the story that unfolds throughout Judges, the cycle continues, the greater point is not some formulaic reduction of God and how he operates, but instead it's really a sad commentary on our simple human predictability. See, we don't have to be convinced to take a spiritual holiday. It doesn't take much for our attention to wander away from God. It doesn't take much for us to forget. Now, when times are tough, we expect to have to pay attention to what's going on around us, pay attention to what's going on and what we're doing in our own lives and how that might affect our situation. But when things start to get easy, start to get comfortable the way we define comfort, it's easy for us to just forget what's important and just start to let everything go. When there's nothing pressing upon us as this constant reminder of our need for God, it takes discipline to keep our minds focused on what matters most. But unfortunately, that kind of discipline seems to be the exception rather than the rule. And so we end up similar to the way Israel is described throughout Judges, but we see one instance where in in Judges 3, 7, it says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. They forgot the Lord? Really? See, I don't think this is like forgetting someone's name. Something that's just on the tip of your tongue, but you can't quite place it. It's not like forgetting an appointment because you forgot to put it on your calendar. You didn't write it down, and so it just slipped your mind. See, this looks like a failure of practical memory. Even if they did, and I think they did remember the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in their heads. They clearly forgot about him in their hearts. See, it was probably just easier to do what's described here, and just fall in line with the local customs, worship those local gods. I mean, those that worship them, they did live according to those sort of simple retribution and prosperity formulas. At least they tried to. They tried to make sense of their world that way. And, and so, as Israelites are thinking, well, things are going well enough. I've got a roof over my head. I've got food in my belly. Do I really need to concern myself with the bigger things? Or should I just take it easy here? Their actions didn't align with any knowledge they had of the one true God. In terms of practical memory, yeah, they had forgotten the Lord, as unimaginable as that might be for us. Now, I'd like to say that we have learned from their mistakes, that we've seen this story and we've taken it as the cautionary tale that it is, and we say, oh, we're not going to let ourselves do that. We're not going to be so foolish. We're going to remain vigilant where they went adrift. But we forget too, don't we? Because, honestly, we're pretty comfortable today. Now, though some around us are are quick to cry persecution, we have to admit that we have it pretty easy relative to much of the history of, of God's people. 
Um, there's a handy little chart that I saw someone post online during this past Christmas season, and don't get all worked up. It's a joke, but and I made it as big as I could. I don't think you can read it from here, but it's a nice little flow chart to, to help us out as we feel like try to feel like if you know it says, "Are you being persecuted?" There on the top, first question: Did someone threaten your life, safety, civil liberties, or right to worship? Um, you know, the answer yes leads you to well, then you are being persecuted. Um, if the answer is no, the next question is: Did someone wish you a happy holidays? Um, well, yes or no, it leads to no, you're not being persecuted. Um, now, it's a little bit of tongue-in-cheek sarcasm there, but I think it makes a good point. It helps to get things back a little bit in better perspective. You see, many times throughout history, being one of God's people meant slavery, imprisonment, and death. In many places in the world today, this very morning, following God means slavery, imprisonment, or even death. We've got it pretty easy, folks. I know we all have our struggles and our difficulties to contend with. That's just universal. But in terms of claiming Christianity here and now, we all have it pretty easy. The fact that we can come and sit in this room tells you we have it pretty easy. And to say otherwise is an insult to our brothers and sisters of the past and the present who are dealing with real persecution. But our level of what you might call superficial comfort can be another one of those dangerous blessings that we're talking about. It can lead us to drift away from the true comfort of God. There's a big difference between the comfort that we tend to seek for ourselves, how we tend to define comfort, and the true comfort that comes from God. You see, here's what we tend to look for, what we tend to want when we're looking for comfort. First off, we want something that's fast. I hope this movie reference isn't lost on anyone here. We all have a little Veruca salt in us. You know, that girl from Willy Wonka, Chocolate Factory... Her big musical number, her big song was, I want it now. I think we've all got a little bit of that in us. No matter how patient we might think we may be, we've all got a little bit of that in us. We might not always be sure of what we want, but we do know we want it now. We don't want to wait. We live in a world that lives on fast food, high-speed internet, and express lanes. If something doesn't come fast, we're likely to give up and move on to something else. Because waiting, being patient, that's not comfortable. If I want comfort, I want it now. I want it fast. We also want something easy. Yes, that's a sloth. In fact, that's a sleeping sloth, so a little, maybe a little too on the nose. But we, as little effort as possible would be nice. Along with the speed, we want it to be easy. We want to find something. I mean, work and comfort... Those things don't really get along well. They don't mesh very well in our minds. Would I, would I have to do something difficult to find comfort? That doesn't make any sense. I want comfort to come easily to me. Maybe while I'm taking a nap. Just, just shows up. I just wake up and there it is. And we also, maybe most of all, want something simple. There's a, 
a, a quote that floats around uh, attributed to, to Albert Einstein. There's everybody's favorite picture of Einstein, or my favorite picture of Einstein at least. It says, you may have heard this before, it, it's, it's mentioned a lot, that everything should be as simple as it can be, but not simpler. Probably didn't actually say that, by the way. It's another one of those quotes that isn't, isn't quite right. In fact, I got all weird again, and I did some research, and I had to know. Um, and as best as anyone can figure out, this is really a paraphrase that some composer that was talking about complexity in music and why like modern classical music was so hard for people to comprehend. And he made reference to this, saying, like Einstein said, everything should be as simple as it can be, but not simpler. What Einstein actually did say, the closest thing to this that I could find, was from a, a lecture at Oxford in 1933 called On the Method of Theoretical Physics. And here's what he actually said. It can scarcely be denied that the supreme goal of all theory is to make the irreducible basic elements as simple and as few as possible without having to surrender the adequate representation of a single datum of experience. Simple, right? <laughs> I think he could have said that a little more simply, but, you know, maybe he was going for irony. I don't know. Um, I'm a big fan of simplicity. I think a couple years back, I preached a whole series of lessons on how we need to simplify things. Simple disciplines, practices, simple routines, simplifying our life. There is value in pursuing simplicity. I don't want you to get me wrong on this. But not everything can be so simple. That's why I like this quote that's not really a quote. (laughs) Well, it is a quote just from Robert Sessions, not Einstein, but I think it's still good. Everything should be as simple as it can be, but not simpler. Because see, the value in the simple that we may desire, that comes when it makes room in your life from what is inherently and irreducibly complex. I mean, by all means, take the simple answers and the simple solutions when you can, so that your mind and heart are freed up to wrestle with the greater things, full of mystery and wonder. Now, naturally, and rather foolishly, we don't really like to wrestle with those greater things. We want to stick to those simple things. And we seek comfort for ourselves so many times in the lesser things. But that comfort doesn't really last if it was ever really there to begin with. And so eventually we realize that we've been downing painkillers when what we needed was a surgeon. Eventually we realize, okay, I've got to find something real here. I've got to take some serious steps. And the question comes, okay, what is true comfort? What does it look like? How can I actually find it? Well, first, I think we need to rid ourselves of this idea where we've equated ease and comfort. Comfort is ease. It's not. (laughs) But when we talk about our comfort zone, as we so often call it, we're talking about what comes easy. We're talking about the things that come naturally to us without any great mental, mental, physical, or emotional effort. But ease... If we're honest with ourselves, we know that it's really a false comfort that more often than not, it actually leads us away from what God is up to. Staying in that easy comfort keeps us from following God to where he's calling us. That ease is not comfort. Because see, the only true comfort is peace. And the only true peace comes from God. Because, see, this peace, this comfort, 
can only come from God because it comes with God's presence. In Isaiah 40, starting at the beginning of the chapter, Isaiah says here, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. That her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This familiar passage, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged place, places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As Isaiah tells of the, the coming deliverance from their Babylonian exile, comfort comes with the Lord's arrival. Comfort comes as the glory of the Lord is revealed, and all people get to see it together. Now, we know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all all three of these gospel writers, they all point to this passage as they tell of John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. This voice crying in the wilderness wasn't just proclaiming the end of an exile, but the entrance of the kingdom. He was proclaiming the arrival of a king. Comfort, comfort my people. The glory of the Lord is revealed. The king is here. Our comfort comes from Emmanuel. Our comfort comes from God with us. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. There's so much comfort that we feel. There's so much comfort that we find when we know that we're not alone. A hand to hold. The voice on the other end of the line. The knowledge that someone is at home waiting for your return. We find comfort in these things. There's so, we get so much comfort from other people knowing that we're in this mess together and that we're not alone. So if we get that much comfort from these other people, imagine, now we have this person who is also God. And he chooses to come and be in this mess with us. He is our comfort. He is our peace. And when we make it to the other side, when we get away from these false comforts and we recognize that only the arrival of Jesus brings us lasting comfort, when we find that true comfort, well, we'll probably find that it wasn't fast and it wasn't easy and it certainly wasn't simple. But also, when you've experienced the true comfort of God, I think you'll also find that it's not enough to simply receive comfort for yourself. It brings us back again to something we talked about last week, that larger point of blessing, that we are blessed so that we can bless others, so that we can pass these blessings along to the world. But this one's tricky. You see, as hard as it is for us to find the blessing of comfort in God himself and not be distracted by all these other lesser comforts, See, we should expect that it will be hard for others to accept the kind of comfort that we offer. We should expect that it's not going to make sense to them right away. Now, some have tried to make this easy to accept. We could sell it as the fast, easy, simple solution that we've all been looking for, but I don't know if anyone who's been around for very long would actually believe that. 
They'd know it was disingenuous. Or, instead of selling it as the fast, easy, simple solution, we could simply tell the truth. We could tell the truth that includes the false starts and the uncertainty. The truth that includes the struggle and the pain. The truth that includes the unanswered questions and the unknowable mysteries. It might not sound comfortable to those who hear the truth at first. But there is true comfort there in this truth. Because, see, it's the truth that includes the fullness of God and who He is and what He's called us to and what He has in store for us. Not just the easy parts, not just the simple parts. The fullness of God with all of its complexity and mystery, that's where we find the God of all comfort. And when Paul speaks of this God of all comfort in 2 Corinthians passage that we read earlier this morning, he isn't trying to sell some easy lie. No, he's telling the truth. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. Sorry, I just lost my place. So also our comfort abounds through Christ. See, he goes on to remind the Corinthian church of all the struggles that he, all the troubles that he and his companions had experienced. He goes on to remind them that, hey, we've endured pressures beyond what we thought we could handle. We even thought we were going to die. But, he says, I, Paul, I know the God who comforts us in all our troubles. He could comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Regardless of his circumstances, he could say that his comfort abounds through Christ. He didn't try and sugarcoat the hard parts, the difficult parts, the complicated parts. Yet he still says, our comfort abounds through Christ. Now, I want to offer this comfort to you. Not that I'm really the one making that offer. I can't offer you myself the comfort that you need. This church can't really make you that offer. Jesus himself, he offers you the invitation to come to him and only him for comfort. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I hope you hear his invitation today. If you're tired of the short-term promises and the temporary comforts that this world has offered you, and you're ready to take hold of the eternal promises and the lasting comfort of God, the God who will never leave you or forsake you, I hope you do something about that today.
If you're ready to lay down your life at the feet of Jesus so that he can lift you up. Allowing your life to declare, comfort, comfort my people. As the glory of the Lord is revealed through your life. We would love to help you take the next step in pursuing that. That comfort, that real comfort of God. If there's anything that we can do to help you respond to his invitation this morning, please come and let us know while we stand and while we sing.